Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, ciao, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, nihao, mahadin, namaste, and shalom. Here we are, back for year five of Export Stories Podcast 2023. Um, I'm excited. <laughs> And I really want to thank you all for joining us. I'm your host, Betsy Olam. But first, I want to thank our sponsor for this episode, the North Carolina District Export Council. My name is Bill Harrison, and I'm the chair of the North Carolina District Export Council. It gives me great pleasure to sponsor the Export Stories podcast especially this episode in which one of our own North Carolina District Export Council members, Jonathan Zooks, will be the podcast guest interviewed by our host, Betsy Olam. The North Carolina District Export Council is one of more than 60 district export councils throughout the United States. The North Carolina District Export Council is composed of approximately 30 members who are appointed by the U.S. Secretary of Commerce. The members are leaders and experts in the field of international trade. The North Carolina District Export Council contributes its leadership and international trade expertise to complement the U.S. Commercial Services export promotion efforts by counseling businesses on the exporting process and conducting international trade education. The North Carolina District Export Council's primary activities are to advocate for North Carolina exporters, organize B2B trade missions for North Carolina companies, mentor North Carolina businesses new to international trade, and to educate through export university programs and seminars. A major innovative initiative of the North Carolina District Export Council is its Building Trade DNA initiative. The purpose is to educate students from our youngest learners to high school students and beyond on how exporting and international trade works. It is tailored to the learning level of each class to make it fun and interactive. This initiative has been adopted by the National Association of District Export Councils and other district export councils throughout the U.S. Thank you for joining us for this Export Stories podcast with our host, Betsy Olam. I am very excited about the year we have lined up for you. This year, our theme is the 50 states. And while we won't be able to get to all of them, our guests will be exporters and service providers, large and small, from states all over the U.S. that that we're going to highlight. And they're going to share their success stories, surprising stories, inspiring stories, all through the lens of what's happening in the world today. So I'm very excited to introduce our first guest of the year. Joining us from Mars Hill, North Carolina, is Jonathan Such. President of Advanced Super Abrasives, a very interesting business, and I'm excited for you all to hear about that. Uh, Jonathan is a member of the District Export Council of North Carolina, as well as the National District Export Council, and we'll get into what that means in just a moment. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Betsy, and, and thank you for having me on, and, and thank you to all the listeners out there. I hope that uh, 
my time spent here today will be very beneficial for everyone. Oh, I know it will be. And and so <clears throat> let's start this way. First, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself, your background, and then, you know, how you joined Advanced Super Abrasives. Sure. It's, it's an interesting story. So, you know, born in New Jersey, uh, Central Jersey, Edison, New Jersey, moved down to North Carolina actually in 1993 uh, because my father wanted to start his own business in the grinding wheel industry, which is what Advanced Super Abrasives makes. And I never dreamt of being in this industry. I always dreamt to be a doctor or something else and uh, went to engineering school graduated with my bachelor's in electrical and computer engineering. And uh, my father approached me to actually join the family business. And would I be willing to not only join, work on some projects, but in the future handle international sales. And so after graduating college, I worked in our machine division. Uh, after the machine division, I um, started doing some sales, going out on sales calls. And then I remember my father handed me a suitcase and a list of customers to visit in Germany and a plane ticket and said, good luck. You're going to meet somebody at the Munich International Airport. Uh, but at that time, there was no international cell phones. Uh, so I landed in Munich and just started in international sales. Um, but that wasn't my, my goal in life, but it did become my yeah. passion. Uh, and I, and I love the international side of sales yeah. and service and, and everything. And then in 2017, as my father started to get into his retirement years, we agreed that I would purchase advanced super braces from him and uh, he would he would go ahead and retire. So, you know, we, we do a lot of exporting, a lot of international sales. Uh, we have sales office actually in Mexico City. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, it really is a passion for us as a team here at Advanced Super Abrasives to sell to 28 countries out of our little rural town in Western North Carolina. So that's really, you know, a, a quick story mm -hmm. of me, of how I got started in this. And like everybody else, uh, the reason why we got into international sales is because we're accidental exporters. Somebody found our product and my father yep. said, oh, you're young, go out and sell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I think that is a common story, but, but, you know, everybody has a little unique twist on how, you know, they end up exporting. Uh, obviously, what you have is a product that really fits. Uh, but can you explain to the listeners what a grinding wheel is or does? Let's just get down to the basics here. So we know what we're talking about. Sure. So our products are what we call super abrasive. So we use man-made diamond or uh, what they call cubic boron nitride that's used for grinding steel. And it, in a nutshell, what it is, is it's a grinding wheel. Could be one inch in diameter, could be 36 inches in diameter. So, I mean, you're talking something very small to something that's three foot in diameter that makes tools or parts. So we always say we make the grinding wheels that make the tools that make whatever it is that everybody's using. So that could be drills or end mills for automotive or aerospace. Our wheels grind all those. Our wheels grind ceramic parts for microprocessors, computer chip industry. Our wheels grind saw blades for the wood industry or cutting of aluminum and steel. We make grinding wheels for medical device manufacturing. So, you know, if you're going in there and you're getting dental burrs used on your teeth or 
I hope you're not doing yeah. this, but you're getting a root canal. Our wheels grind all those tools that are used uh, in the dentistry <laughs> or in bone marrow transplants or you know, blood platelet separation machines. So our wheels are used in just about everything of everybody's life from energy industry, whether that's renewables, whether it's oil and gas, nuclear, all the way through, like I said, medical, uh, you know, aerospace, automotive, yeah. but the grinding wheels really are that. They're a round product that has a man-made abrasive on it that actually grind the tools. So that's in a nutshell, really what we make. I mean, and, and like you said, just reaching all these different sectors just has to be very interesting. Uh, the, the customers that you deal with from, you know, such a wide range, you know, of of industry, that, that must be fascinating. I think you said to me something like, uh, you're a large business that nobody really knows about. Is that something like that? Exactly. We're what we would call ourselves is the unsung heroes that nobody knows about. Um, you know, ours is a necessary industry that we couldn't live our daily lives without grinding wheel manufacturers, but we're the most overlooked industry in that, you know, people look at the end creators of the products as those that they need. Uh, but without us, they could never get there. So when you're working with the large plane manufacturers like Airbus or Boeing, or Bombardier or Embraer, if it wasn't for us, they would never have their tools to actually make their planes. Uh, you know, if you're looking right. at the automotive industry, whether it's any of the big three in the U.S. or any international uh, car manufacturer, if it wasn't us, you wouldn't have car parts. You know, you, you use your laptop. Yeah. If you're using a cell phone or a laptop to listen to this podcast, you know, if it wasn't for us, you wouldn't have the computer chips in those items because our wheels actually grind the silicon wafers that go into making the computer chips. So without that, and, and here's one that people will love. Everybody normally will, at some point in their life will go to a fountain drink machine. Our wheels grind the little ceramic seals in those fountain drink machines that actually when you move the drink away, it shuts off the liquid so it doesn't pour all over the place. So these are all things that we, our products grind and manufacturing process that people don't think about, but it's a necessity. I mean, nobody wants to wear soda all over them the rest of the day. So you want to make sure that that machine turns off. And it, that's exactly. why we're kind of the unsung heroes. Amazing. That's, that's really amazing. And um, would you say that you also create the software that creates the grinding wheels? So what is, we it, is it software driven or... It, so what we have is we have our machine division where we do have our own software that actually we create the designs on the outside of the wheel. So if a particular customer is needing a specific shape for whatever you know project that they're working on, that is something that we do make. So we do design and build everything in-house, but then we also create software for our machine division that allows the customers to put their own shapes and designs on there. Uh, because some things are proprietary, so they don't want us to know these shapes or designs. Um, so they'll they'll keep it in-house, but then they'll buy our piece of equipment with our software on there that then they can import their designs and actually, basically, I, I always say trace it um, on the mm -hmm. screen and create the kind of wheel shape that they want. And one other thing that's okay. of interest is if I had to tell somebody right now what is one thing that our grinding wheels have touched recently that most people would actually understand it would be COVID vaccines right before 
COVID hit, we came up with grinding wheels to grind the needle tips for the syringes for vaccinations. Um, little did we know back then that COVID would hit. And when it did, uh, all the COVID vaccine needles that went into people's arms were actually ground with our wheels here in North Carolina. Um, and we exported those all over the world. So, you know, people always say, well, how can I relate to it? Well, if you got a COVID vaccine, the needle went in your arm and it didn't hurt. Uh, you're welcome. That's because our wheels were produced here uh, in Western North Carolina, and that's why it didn't hurt. Now, I'm not saying your arm won't hurt after you get the vaccine or the booster, but you know, as long <laughs> as the needle doesn't hurt, that's what we want. Yeah. How traumatic was COVID for your company? But it sounds like, in a good way, uh, it in, you know increased your business. It sounds like. It did. One of the We're, industries that we were unaware of that we were into, um, and and this is you know, not us overlooking the industry, we just didn't think about it, was the ag industry. You know, when COVID hit, ag production uh, boosted because people were staying at home. And so they were cooking more and, you know, the restaurants were closed. So we didn't know all the products that our wheels actually ground in the ag industry. So if, you know, come, you go to the, get your cut meats, uh, you know, whether it's your lunch yeah. meats or whether it's your, butcher uh, shop that you go to. I did not know how many of our wheels were actually used to grind all those blades that the, they use in those facilities. So that was an mm -hmm. eye opener, even to the point yeah. where they're creating these shears to harvest uh, lemons and oranges and apples and things with automated machinery, as opposed to handpicking the fruit. Uh, I did not know all the equipment that we made or all the grinding wheels we made for that equipment as well. So COVID was very eye-opening for us in that our staple industries of aerospace and automotive really slowed down. Um, but other industries right. like medical uh, on, the, on the vaccine side, the microprocessor side, the um, ag side, and the woodworking side absolutely boomed because people were fixing up their homes. They were sitting at home right. doing home projects. They were eating at home. So all these th in other industries that we were in really boosted up and were able to carry us. And not only were they able to carry us, but having the international sales around the world, you know, if Brazil was shut down on lockdown, then maybe South Korea was open. If South Korea was shut down, then, you know, maybe Japan was open for a little bit or, you know, maybe right. parts of the EU. So we were able to really navigate very well through COVID, but there were stumbling blocks because you know different countries had different shutdowns and if you can't get your products through customs um then you can't get paid so these are some of the things we fought but all in all we we fared very very well well you know i think it kind of points to one of the lessons of the value of exporting and that is it diversifies your business. If you're a U.S. company and you're selling within the U.S., it's great. But, I mean, the number of markets that are out there and, you know, also diversifying industries, if you can, that use your product. But but export just adds multi layers of diversity, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And you need that diversity. Uh, you know, we look... Most recent times, look at the war in Ukraine uh, and how that's upset the EU economy over there. And, and they're rebounding and they're doing you know, a remarkable job over there. But if you right. were just solely in the US or solely in the EU, you would have taken a huge hit. 
Um, exactly. You know, you need to have this diversity. You know, you can look to Southeast Asia. You can look to South America. You can just look North and South Canada and Mexico. You know, Mexico is mm -hmm. one of the net beneficiaries of the supply chain movement because of COVID. So you right. want to insulate yourself and, you know, doing business with countries like Canada and Mexico is really not a bad gig. Uh, it's close, you know, most flights are three, four hours to get wherever you need to go in those countries. And they like doing business with us. And we have USMCA. So you're not having to deal with all the tariffs and, and all the other red tape that you would have to go through with other non-free trade agreement countries. But being diversified definitely makes your company more stable. You're able to offer better benefits for your employees. I can tell you that, you know, for a small company, our size and rural Western North Carolina, we still pay 100% of our employees' health insurance premiums. Nothing comes out of their paychecks. We, they have long-term disability. They have vision coverage. You know, they have all life insurance policies for their dependents if something were to happen to them. And we have all these benefits even beyond that that we can offer. But if we weren't exporting and we weren't diversified, it'd be very difficult to do that because if the U.S. economy dips just a little bit, you could lose your business where in the world, every economy is on a different life cycle. So, you know, you may have somebody going into recession, but then you may have people that are really way, uh, riding a wave of success. And so, you know, that diversity and allowing your company to be in all those different international markets really assist you in your current status, but then your growth potential, because you can watch these cycles in these countries of economic growth, economic recession, economic growth, economic recession, and by being diversified, it doesn't affect your company as much. Right, exactly. Um, <clears throat> so um, you, you sort of touch on a subject that I, I wanted to talk about with you. Um, I was I was going to say that this is a year that you know economically, politically, et cetera, we're going to be talking a lot about China. It's it you know it's still an important market for some, but not for everybody. In fact, I think there's going to be more conversations about nearshoring because of China. And I just wonder what your thoughts were on that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think you're going to see a huge influx of nearshoring. We're already seeing it. The medical device manufacturers, especially that were in China, a lot of them have started moving to Canada and Mexico. Uh, we're seeing that, especially in the Tijuana area of Mexico, a lot of medical device manufacturing. But you're going to see other industries do the same thing. Uh, and, yeah. and they're not only going to be focused in Canada and Mexico, you're going to see some go to further south in Latin America, to Central and South America. Uh, we're seeing some move out of China into other parts of Asia, especially Southeast Asia. You know, Vietnam's pretty full up, but you have places like uh, Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, those areas right. tend to be picking up more of this. And, you know, I always say nearshoring is great, but what we really need is what I call friend shoring, which means like if you have free trade agreements mm -hmm. with Colombia or Chile or Canada and Mexico, that's really where we want this reshoring or nearshoring to go because yes. those are our friends. Those are where we have the, the least barriers for small companies to do business. So while we're seeing this nearshoring happen, uh, I, I like to see a little bit more of what I call the friend shoring, where we're yeah, going yeah. into markets that are easy for SMEs to do business. Um, do you think we learned a lesson from 
maybe uh, over dependence on China. Absolutely. I, I think the world has awoken from, I, I think we've all awakened from COVID and we're looking at it totally different. Uh, you know, how yeah. many people would have guessed that we would have had a shortage of cotton swabs uh, for testing kits? I mean, people always took that for granted that it just was made here. Well, now they find that it wasn't made here. And a lot, I think a lot of people mm -hmm. questioned why. So a lot of industries yeah. and a lot of different uh what I call stakeholders, whether they're legislators mm -hmm. or business people or just the general public have said, we don't want this. We want to have robust supply chains that are not dependent on one particular entity and maybe a particular entity may, that may not always be friendly with us. You know, we can look back to World War II and the start of that where our largest trading partner right before World War II was Japan. And they're the yeah. ones who attacked us. So you know, we don't want to have this reemergence of the same thing happening from World War II, where we have this great trading relationship and dependency on each other. And then look what happens. We want to yeah. have a lot of friends that we work with and different free trade agreements and partners. And that's why I think you're going to see a continuance of supply chains move outside of China um, into more friendlier mm -hmm. nations. Yeah, I agree. I think it's important to talk about that. Um, so, all right, so here's a good story that you shared with me. So it's not a trick question. What is your most distant market that you have shipped to? Yes, yeah, so we actually have the North Carolina record for the furthest export for a North Carolina company. And <laughs> fun, funny story behind this, when I tell people that they look at me and they go, well, the world's round. So how far could you really have been? And I say, well, <laughs> we're not exporting to people in our planet. We're exporting to another planet. And they just look at me and I said, well, uh, a few years ago, we were able to get a grinding wheel on the Curiosity rover that's on Mars. And so we actually exported one of our products to the planet Mars. So we always say, you know, from Mars Hill to Mars, we have a grinding wheel and a solution for you. Uh, and we just really enjoy being a part of that process with, you know, the robotics companies that made the Curiosity rover with NASA and everybody there, uh, very proud that we were able to export our wheel to the planet Mars and that it worked all the way through the end of its life cycle. I actually went beyond its life cycle and uh, we're just very proud to be a part of that uh, project. But we're working with other companies. You know, unfortunately, today we had a SpaceX launch that was scrubbed, but working with them, Blue Origins, you know, Virgin Galactic, yeah. all these other companies that are doing interplanetary interplanetary exploration or space stations and very excited yeah. uh, to be exporting our products outside of our own planet Earth. That is so exciting. Well, you have something on the moon in the future, do you think? We will. Uh, we have been working we're going with, back to the moon. Yes, yeah. we, we've been working with... Uh, government contractors on that with NASA to actually do some core drill sampling and things like that so that they can test different parts of the moon because they're going to go to different parts of the moon that we've not been to yet and they want to see what's there so we've been working with them on different projects uh, for our products going to the moon but just as excited to hear that our projects may go out on the space stations uh, a lot of companies are looking to put their own space oh, yeah. stations in earth orbit so we're looking forward to being a part of that process as well are you wait a minute? You're saying there's going to be 
a multitude of space stations and they'll be privately owned? Yes, there is. There is several companies, one of which I know, Axiom, uh, that are looking to put private uh, space stations up there and do uh, not only research and development, but some manufacturing in uh, Earth orbit because they're finding that there are different products that they can make in Earth orbit that they cannot make here on Earth due to the gravitational uh, pull of the Earth. So they're actually looking at having 10 space stations, 10 space stations in the near future um, to be floating outside of Earth and to actually have things go up and come back from those space stations. So very interesting things that are going on right now. Oh, my goodness. Well, I hope they space out those space stations so they don't run into all the debris that's out there. But that is so exciting. That's really cool. I didn't know about that. All right. So um, now I want to focus on uh, something that you and I are both involved in, and that's our local district export councils. But you're also, are you the chair of the National District Export Council? Or, uh, yes. What is your... Yeah, yes, t- t- let's talk about, let's explain to listeners what the district export councils are and what the national is about. Well, the, the local district export councils are made up of business men and women, people that have been appointed by the Commerce Secretary uh, to be on a local district export council. There's 61 across the 50 states. Uh, so you can tell by the math, there are some states that have multiples like California, right. uh, Texas, Florida. But the, the um, mission yeah. and the goal of these district export councils is to inform, educate, advocate uh, small and medium businesses, even large businesses on exporting and really to be their mentors or handholders, right. as I say. And that's one of the biggest you know, parts of being a district export council member that I love is mentoring a business in exporting to a new market. Mm-hmm. We export, you know, to 28. And so if somebody says, oh, I got this client and um, they, they want to export to Brazil, we know you're exporting to Brazil. Can you tell them the, the you know, the good stories and the bad stories about exporting right. to Brazil and what they need to look for? And so district export council members really and inform and educate, you know, the general public, business professionals, um, you know, on these exporting opportunities or pitfalls. And they also do the same thing with free trade agreements, with other pieces of legislation like the Ocean Shipping Reform Act uh, of 2022 mm-hmm. that helped small businesses get containers during the supply chain crisis where we could not get containers. And right. they don't only do that, but the District Export Council members also advocate. So they'll meet with their state legislators or the federal legislators and they'll push for items to be brought, you know, into law that actually lower the barriers for small, medium businesses to export. And that's really what our charge is from a local level is to do that, you know, education and advocacy at the more local level. And on the national level, that is really where the National Association District Export Councils listen to all 61 local district export councils and find out where are the issues? You know, is there a port issue like we had on the West Coast? Well, let's see what the ports on the East Coast are doing. And okay, now let's go to Congress and let's focus on this Ocean Shipping Reforming Act. How can we alleviate some of the issues with the port congestion? Okay, now we're, you know, looking at a free trade agreement, let's say with the UK. Well, what are small businesses really needing? And how can the national 
Association District Export Council take that information and give it to those legislators and those negotiators and say, this is some barriers to doing uh, exporting to the UK or the EU. We would yeah. like to see these eliminated. And that's part of that real advocacy uh, on that side. So from the local side and from the National District Export Council side, you know, there's a lot of advocacy, but the most fun part about both is the mentorship part. Absolutely. Um, yes. So, yeah, and I, we, we just want people to be aware of them, of that there's one in your state and, you know, you should feel very comfortable reaching out to them. They, we work with the Department of Commerce, uh, uh, make uh, these companies in our states aware of the services and and resources that are available. So, uh, absolutely. Um, one of the things uh, I want to ask you, since you brought it up, the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, you seem to be knowledgeable about that. What are some of the uh, fixes you think that will be included in that act? Well, there's a lot of different things that will be that will actually have already come from it. One is uh, the rates for containers have dropped significantly. So small businesses that were being asked to pay twenty and thirty thousand dollars to get a container, mm -hmm. now they're back, you know, to sub five thousand dollars, some sub four thousand dollars to get containers, mm -hmm. uh, which is more reasonable. And so we're looking at that. We're also looking at you know, what are the effects through the ports and how does, you know, the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, you know, what kind of effect does it have on the ports? Congestion, um, we know what it does for the access of containers and lowering the, the price point for small exporters, but what about the port congestion? You know, we don't want to get into another situation that we had a few months ago where you have ships sitting out there, you know, for months. Oh my gosh. Just yeah, circling or or being anchored out there, we want to be sure that we have a, a great supply chain. So, you know, I would say the Ocean Shipping Reform Act is a great start. Uh, it is no by no means the end. Um, so we're continuing yeah. to look at what other opportunities uh, there are out there to help with just the supply chain as a whole. Um, and that could be with, you know, maybe the upgrade of ports, uh, maybe through the upgrade of um, you know, the, one of the things they're looking at is, you know, rail system in Panama or in Mexico, where they can actually move from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean, all these containers and not have to go through the canal. So are, are these right. things that we should be supporting through U.S. legislation as well, so that, you know, our supply chains aren't reliant on, you know, outdated uh, ports or overburdened ports on the West Coast when we can move things right just as easily to the East Coast and not have the same burdens. Yeah, well, it's a good start. And um, it, I'm, I'm glad we can share that with people. So, well, as you know, uh, Export Stories podcast is about storytelling. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was wondering, I mean, you're, you're, you've already shared your story about uh, who your company is. But how about um, if you wouldn't mind sharing a few stories, a few of your export stories, some of your experiences, we'd love to hear. Oh, absolutely. So one of our biggest successes, I would say, um, is where we're one of the few companies that I know of personally 
that actually <clears throat> utilize something called SEPA. And that's the, the Chinese economic partnership agreement between Hong Kong and China before uh, Hong Kong has been you know, recently taken over by the Chinese government. Right. And what it allowed U.S. companies to do was to open light manufacturing facilities to do a certain percentage of work. Uh, and I believe the threshold was about 30 percent of the work had to be done in Hong Kong. Uh, and then it would be called made in Hong Kong. And then you could actually ship it uh, into China duty free. Um, now, you still had the VAT tax, but you didn't have the tariffs um, and you know the import and customs uh, fees that you would if you were shipping it from the U.S., so we, we right. actually created a facility, and I ran that facility in the sales office over there, and our tariff rate at that time was 30%. So we would do 70% of the work here in North Carolina, ship it over to Hong Kong, which was a zero tariff uh, area. We would take it in mm -hmm. there, do 30% of the work, send it into China, and not have to pay the 30% tariff rate. And we were one of the few companies that were able to do that. Um, and did it successfully for many years. And then we could kind of see the writing on the wall about what was going on uh, yeah. in China and Hong Kong. And so we decided to shut that down. Plus a lot of our customers had already started moving to other markets. And so we mm -hmm. decided to shut that office down. But that's just, you know, one story there. A another one is, you know, working with a, a small family business in Brazil. Um, Brazil is one of the harder markets to export to. But if you're if you have all your documents and everything in order and you have a, a good product and you can service it and everything, you, you can do a lot of business down in Brazil. And I remember working with a lot of family-owned businesses there. Uh, and that was always fun for me to export down there. And I, I love going to Brazil two, three, four times a year. Oh, I love Brazil. Yeah. It's an interesting market, but you know we're doing a tremendous amount of business in, in Mexico to the point where we have a sales office in Mexico now. We did more in export revenue to Mexico in 2021 than the previous 15 years combined. So that should tell yeah. your listeners that they need to look south yeah. to Mexico with this nearshoring, mm -hmm. as I call it, friendshoring. And it's so neat to see the diverse products that we export. You know, exporting products to the Czech Republic is different than exporting products to South Korea or to Poland or to Germany. Yeah. You know, and everybody's needs are different. And what I love the most about it is what we call putting butts in seats, which is getting on a plane <laughs> and going over there and, and seeing your customers and going to trade shows. And, you know, to me, that's where the passion is. That, that's what I love yeah. is to travel and see things. And, you know, to go to an Airbus uh, assembly plant or to go to the 787 assembly plant in South Carolina to me, it's always awe-inspiring to see these large manufacturing facilities. And when you're an exporter, to see them all over the world. I mean, I got to go into uh, places where they're using or they're manufacturing these um, uh, lotions and creams for these high-end spas. Um, and, I, and you sit there and you go, well, what are grinding wheels used for that? Well, apparently they were regrinding some of their tools in there that they were using to grind up and chop up their raw materials to turn these uh, products into ointments and creams. I didn't think about that, but really neat yeah. stuff that you get to see. And that was in Germany or, you know, you go to, um, you know, some of these places that have been there in Germany for over a hundred years and you walk into that manufacturing facility and they show you the original part 
and then they show you other parts of the building or you go to Switzerland mm. to one of the world's oldest uh, printing rolling manufacturing facilities and our wheels grind the little doctor's blades that go over the printing rollers and you know to see uh, you know a river go between the two sides of the building and they would load these printing machines and everything on with a barge and it's just amazing huh? to see all these things yeah. and when you export you get to see so yeah. much of the world and and so many of these and again it's really great people i think what people really need to understand is that us made products are highly sought after all over the world and i don't care if it's europe or any other western country they still want us made products because there is a quality there is um a desire for it. You know, I can't tell you how many times I go into a place and I'm not downing any company here. This is just, you know, my personal preference. I go into whether it's in Europe or South America or Asia and they see me and they say, oh, we have a bottle of Jack Daniels. And I said, oh, that's great. <laughs> and they're just so yeah. proud to have something that was made in the US. Yeah. And, and I think that's what your listeners really need to understand is that there is a desire for American made products. I, I can tell you, when I had my office in Hong Kong, the big thing in China at that time was Harley Davis motorcycles. That was a status symbol inside China. If you had oh, a yeah. Harley, you know, if you had an right. American made Harley, that's, that was a status symbol. And so, you know, Absolutely. US made products are still highly sought after to the point where our shipping crates that had made in the USA on them, when I would go to mm -hmm. our Asian customers or South American customers, they would save the crates and they would like display them. Almost like it was, you know, um, uh, you know, the, it almost like it was a car, a rare car or something. Look, this is right. made in USA. Look, this, this over here, and they always had the U.S. made equipment or wheels segregated from anything else that came from anywhere else, and they always that was the prime stuff came out of the U.S. Yeah. I love that. Or they put it in their apartment because it, it's a cool little coffee table or something. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, um, you know, this is what I I want to do this year with the podcast. I want people to see what we're doing here across the United States. Some of the most fascinating products that we're making, like what you're doing, and we're sending it all over the world. And you know, I just want people to have a little dream about you know, I can I can sell this product. There's countries out there that would love my high quality product or service so you know that's what we want to do this year with the podcast and i am just so excited that you are our first guest for 2023 and i can't tell you how much of and i appreciate your sharing uh your experience and, and your great stories so I, thank you so much absolutely and i, I just want to tell your listeners this they need to remember this. The American consumer is the hardest person to please in the world. And so if they can sell yeah. domestically, selling internationally is actually easier in the sense of making your customer happy. I'm not saying it's going to be easier in tariffs or duties right. or customs or anything like that. But we right, are right. the hardest consumers to please. American consumers are the number one consumers that give complaints. Nobody complains more than American consumers. So if you can have your customers <laughs> happy here, yeah. your international yeah. customers will be blown away 
by your product or your service. And so I'm, it's an honor to be on this podcast and, and to share these things. Thank and, you. you know, just for your listeners to know what a great thing this is that you have created because they need to understand that they may be working in their garage. And I worked with a company here in more rural area than when I'm at. I mean, I'm in an area where there's 1500 people. This, this guy, gentleman was in a place of, you know, 300 people and he started a yeah. furniture company in his garage. And then all of a sudden we worked with him on some exporting training and everything and exporting became more than 75% of his total business. And he was wow. able to hire people and to get a facility and to start manufacturing, you know, parts that maybe he was buying from other people because he was growing, he was able to hire people and create everything on his own. And so, you know, it was a great success story for us as mentors, but they need right. to think about it this way that here's a person that started in their garage, which is the dream, never thought about exporting, right. worked with some other companies that exported. They said, you need to export. And the next thing we know, we were working with this person, showing them how to fill out customs documentation, helping them work with the U.S. Department of Commerce to find distributors in places like Japan and in Europe and places that wanted his product. And it just took off from there. And then he calls me up one day and says, 75% of my business is exporting now. This is amazing. Wow. I never would have thought in 100 years this is what I would do. So I think your listeners should really think about what's their dream, what's their focus. Right. And don't think that that dream and focus can only happen in the 50 United States or only in your particular state. Or right. your You need to think that yeah. this could be a global product or service. And you'd be amazed at how many people are wanting that product or service. So don't ever sell yourself short yeah. out there. Just think about, you know, you want to, you have this dream, you've put your heart and soul into it. Let others see that. And I, I think yeah. when others see that, I think you will be very successful internationally. Definitely use the district export councils because they are the best free advice givers that you'll ever find. Uh, exactly. Like I said, there's 61 district export councils with over 1,500 members across the U.S. And then please, please use your U.S. export assistance centers, or as we call them, USIACs. They're in every state mm -hmm. all over the country. Uh, with great yeah. commerce people that not only will help you find uh, distributors or customers in your market, but actually will advocate for your product. They actually have a, you know, a form to fill out where they can advocate on your behalf to say what a great product or service that you have. So these are things that are resources that you need to use. And then you have other organizations like the SBA on their international side, the Export Import Bank. Um, you know, these can help you with finance, they can help you with credit insurance, all the different things that you would be needing uh, as an exporter. And my suggestion would be to your listeners, if they're not exporting, they need to think about it, uh, need to make a decision. And if they want to do it, it's a decision that you have to stick with. And you, it's very fruitful yeah. once you do it, but you, you have to be very intentional once you make that decision. I know for our company, as an accidental exporter where somebody in Canada said, we wanted your product. We never thought about it. We were intentional from then on to say, right. we want to export. And we started exporting to more countries till we got to 28 and we're going to be adding some more. Uh, but in 2013, we won the president's E award for export excellence. So, you know, it, it was a real boost for our morale here to be recognized that we are, you know, we, we've made it in exporting. But um, yeah. 
you know, most companies, like I said, they have to be intentional, even if they're an accidental exporter, if they want to get into exporting, they need to be intentional about it. And there's tons of resources and tons of great people, just like yourself, Betsy, that will sit there with them <laughs> and, and work with them long after your day's over or my day's over on a phone yeah. or on a Zoom call with somebody for an hour or so, just helping them so that they don't make any mistakes. So they're successful. And so they're profitable. And that's what we're here to do. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. And so that's why you're here. Jonathan, thank you so much for being my guest today and for sharing all these great stories and information. I'm just really grateful. And uh, so Thank you. And also, um, I want to say to our listeners, you should weigh in. If you have some questions or, you know, you just want to share your thoughts, please reach out to me on exportstoriespodcast.com. I'm happy to share your comments there on the website or on Facebook and, and LinkedIn. So, you know, we're a community of exporters. So let's let's talk about stuff. <laughs> um, anyway. Jonathan, thank you again, and uh, really enjoyed our chat today. Oh, thank you very much. And, and again, I really appreciate being on this, and it was a great honor for me. And to all you out there, happy exporting. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 